So this is the second part in our series on the fear of man, fearing rejection by men. And so um, this is something we all struggle with is um, the Lord is, is, is obviously invisible and he's not right here with us and people are all around us and we can very quickly uh, become people-centered in how we deal with our lives and we can be very concerned about how people see us and view us and it can really become a thing that can control our lives and so we're going to Look at that again today. Uh, last week we started with the characteristics of people who were, who were pleasers. Uh, people pleasing, fear of man, it's all synonymous. Um, and we got through about number seven on that. We're going to finish that up and then look also then at the harms. How does this harm us? What is, how does this affect us? Um, last week we talked about um, some characteristics. Where one, we fear the displeasure of man more than the displeasure of God. Number two, we said we desire the praise of man above the praise of God. So we, we're, again, our focus, first of all, is ourselves, because pride is the root of this whole issue. And so we're really concerned with our own image and how we're viewed, as opposed to concerned about God's glory and caring for other people. And so because of that, then we're very concerned how everybody views us, and this is where the trap comes in. So we're concerned about man's displeasure, we're constantly looking for the praise of man. Three, we end up becoming perfectionists. Why? Because, again, our image is very important to us. And so, you know, whether our car is clean or whether our house looks sharp or whether we have the right kind of house or we have the right kind of clothes or, or we're doing the right kind of ministry or we have the right kind of theology, uh, we can really quickly become a chameleon and put all these things on for the very purpose of being accepted. By men, and yet in our pride, we don't even realize we're doing this. It's just something that comes along with who we are. Uh, number four, we find ourselves studying what it takes to please men. So we come into a setting, we quickly find out what are the things that get people raised up, and whatever those issues are, we will focus on those and we will put those into place. Um, and we will listen to people and find out what what bothers them or what they don't agree with, and they'll, then we'll make sure that we line up with whatever they say. Okay, uh, we, five, we fail to share the gospel out of fear of how that person will respond. So we're really um, immobilized in, in gospel sharing because, again, we're dealing with people and how they view us. And even perfect strangers, we're very concerned about how they're going to view us, which is ridiculous, really. But. And then six, we are passive in our relationship, waiting for others to initiate uh, love, reconciliation, leadership, decisions. Why are we passive? Because we're waiting to see what people want, and whatever they want, we're going to find ourselves agreeing with. Okay? And then seven, we will find ourselves using words for the purpose of flattering others just so that they'll feel good about us. And you see this a lot when you're in public school, in settings where you have the, the, the big man on campus or the or the, or the prom queen, and they have this little entourage around them, and they're just saying everything that they can say to this person and praising them how wonderful they are. You did a great job, Mac. Way to go in that game later night. You were super, you know, all this kind of stuff going on. Why are we praising this person? Because we want to be in this crowd. 
And we feel, and we again have lost our significance. Our significance is found in Christ, but we somehow now think our significance is found in other people and how they view us. Um, and then we talked about the characteristics of communication. So today, uh, starting with number eight in the characteristics, what naturally results in this is we become a respecter of persons. Proverbs 29, 26. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. Again, we're looking to people for what only God can give us. That's the thing we have to learn here, is we're looking to people to give us what only God can and has given us. Um, And so we're looking at people, and we're respecters of people, based upon whether they have money or whether they have popularity or whether they have relationships that we need or they have resources that we need. And so instead of coming to them with a ministry mindset, we come looking for what it is we can get from them. Um, And we see this in James 2. Remember, James 2 warns about showing favoritism. You come into a meeting... And there's a man with a gold ring and fine clothes, and you find yourself treating him special with partiality. Why? Because you're hoping to get something out of that relationship. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is chapter 2 of James. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your meeting, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So we find ourselves becoming a respecter of persons, and we quickly evaluate who has importance, and we find ourselves gravitating to them so that we now have importance. So we have a church, we have three churches, and church A is by a very gifted speaker who speaks around the country. B is by somebody who's an adequate preacher, and and C is, but they're not well known. Where do we end up going? Do we go to an obscure man who we don't know? Or do we, do we go to the person who has the high-profile ministry? Why? Why would we go to that church? Well, I go to so-and-so's church. Why? Because there's something we're looking to get out of that relationship. When we look for significant people and we find ourselves gravitating toward them and trying to build these special relationships with them, it's because there's something we want out of it. I learned this when I was... My first pastor up in Ohio, I never realized how popular you could be. So I came to the church, and everyone wanted to be my friend. And they were excited to have us there. But you could tell a lot of people were coming, coming to you because they, they wanted to be closely connected to the pastor for other reasons than just welcoming you to the church. 
you know, the person who has money. All of a sudden, he has all these friends. The, man, the prodigal son, he took his father's inheritance, he went away, and he had tons of friends until what happened? He used up all of his resources. Once his resources were used up, you know, it's over with. So being a respecter of persons. Number nine, we're oversensitive to correction, reproof, and other illusions of dissatisfaction or disapproval on the, on the part of others. Priolo talks about, he says he feels a pinprick as keenly as a knife in his back. He sees any rebuke of sin as a threat to his reputation rather than his opportunity to grow or as an indication of the reprover's love for him. One of our characteristics when we're a people pleaser is we cannot stand, we have a hard time accepting any kind of correction, any kind of confrontation in our sin. And we'll do whatever we can to avoid it because we've built this image of perfection and you coming to tell me that I have a sin in my life, that's going to kind of ruin that image. And we really struggle with that. Pride causes men to hate reproof. The proud are presumptuous in finding fault with others, but do not love the person who reproves them. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever noticed people who can be critical and constantly pointing out your faults? They're masters at it. And then when you think, well, oh, they, love, they love hearing about you know, being corrected, so I'm going to go to them with a correction. How does that work? Doesn't work too well, does it? It kind of all goes one, one direction. Why? Because there's pride. I can point out people's sins in their life. I can point out faults in their life. What? what? You're talking about me now? Wait a minute. We don't, the game doesn't go that way. It goes just one way. Though it is a duty which God commands as an expression of love and contrary to hatred, yet it will make a proud man to be your enemy. If you come to a brother because of his sin and you point it out and it doesn't go well, if you've walked, come to them with a humble spirit, there's a problem of pride there. A scorner loveth not that, that reproveth him, neither will he go unto the wise. He that reproveth a scorner, he'll get himself a blot. What does that mean? Reprove a scorner and you're going to get hit. Someone's going to punch you. Well, they're just, I know, they're going to, I know they talked about sin, how much they hate sin. So I'm just going to tell them about the sin I see in their life. Bam. Reprove not a scorner lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. Well, I'm not proud. Okay, so how do you handle when somebody comes to you with your sin? How do you handle that? What does that situation look like? Do you walk away loving the brother? Thank you, brother, for caring enough to come to me with this situation. Or, or we met with defensiveness, and I can't believe you're doing this to me, and you're not my friend, and, and we're never going to speak to each other again. Wow, that went real well. It embitters their hearts, and they consider themselves to be injured, and they will bear a grudge against you, for it is as though you were their enemy. There's people you can come to with their sin, and 
there's change that takes place. There's people you can come to with their sin, and it's not pretty when it's all said and done. What's the difference? One person, even though they have pride, there's enough humility, they're willing to receive a rebuke. For the other person, a rebuke is not on the radar screen. Okay? Number 10. We tend to serve primarily for the sake of appearance. Since our image is so important, we serve for our image. And we're looking for the most high-profile positions we can have in which to serve, right? I mean, if you're going to serve, you've got to be seen, right? And so, well, hey, we could sure use some help in the kitchen cleaning the dishes. You know, the Lord just hadn't called me to that ministry. <laughs> or the bathrooms need to be clean. Well, you know, I just I never got the call in that either. Or, hey, let's all tear down the facility and get all the chairs put away. Well, it's time for our family to be leaving now. Can you serve in obscurity? Can you serve and nobody know about it? Or are we like the Pharisees where we have to blow the trumpet when we drop our coins into the offering? This really tells a lot about who we are. The people pleaser evaluates his success or failure not on the basis of whether God was pleased with his service. Of course, we all think that's the reason why we're evaluating our service. But rather on how well he performed and if others noticed and admired his service. Now we see this at the job site all the time, don't we? The boss leaves the job site and everybody puts their tools down. Somebody stands as lookout. The truck comes around the corner. All of a sudden, all the tools get back into the hands. We're diligently working, doing our thing. You know, Paul warns about this in Ephesians. In Ephesians 6, that we should not do our service to please men. So who's your audience? That's the whole question here. Who is your audience? Ephesians 6, 5 through 7. Let's go there right quick. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So obey your earthly masters just like you would obey Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And you see, when we as parents do this little charade where at home we live one way, but at church we are the most spiritual people and we're constantly doing service, and our kids watch the difference between the two pictures, and then one day they say, I'm out of here, I'm gone. And we're all going, well, how could that be? Because brother and sister so-and-so are just amazing here at church. They're constantly involved in everything. And I'm not saying that children don't rebel for other reasons. But I'm saying one t- sometimes people rebel because they see the hypocrisy of their parents 
in the church versus what goes on at home. So are we performance driven? That's a real question to ask. And who are we performing for? Number 11, we invest more in, of our personal resources, and that would be our time and talents and money and all that, in establishing our own honor than we do in the establishing of God's. We take the God-given resources we've given, and we funnel it in such a way that we continue to make ourselves look better and better and better and better. Richard Baxter, a proud man will give more to his own honor than to God. His estate is more under the control of his pride than of God. He gives more in the view or with the knowledge of others than he could persuade himself to give in secret. Now, if you ask him to give in secret, it's going to be kind of a small gift. But if we're going to put it up here on the screen of what you gave, wow, it's going to really increase in size. He is more generous in gifts that tend to maintain the good name of his liberality than he is to tr the truly indigent person. People in real need, probably not going. You're probably not going to get the gift. But if there's somebody over here that if I give to them, it's going to profile my liberality. Wow, here it is. This is what's wrong when the government has the freedom and we give them the freedom to spend money as they choose. Back in, back in the Great Depression in the 1920s and 30s, Roosevelt had a, you know, this huge work progress program to put people to work. Now, the South was, was in bad shape. They needed a lot of help. A lot of people were out of work. The problem was in the South... Everybody had voted for Roosevelt. So, Roosevelt made his projects out west because that's the votes he needed to get to become reelected. So, we have all these great projects out west. What was the real purpose of that? Was it to really meet the need of the people? No, it was about getting re-elected. So when you give a person in politics the freedom to spend money, their first concern is where? Here. I've got to get re-elected. So who do I need to give money to so that I can get what? Re-elected. And that's the same thing with us. Why do we do what we do? It is not the good that is done, but the honor which he expects to receive by doing it, which is the principal motive. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All we have is from God. It all comes from him. It should be for his own purposes. Unfortunately, we all know too well that we can funnel God's resources to ourselves in an inordinate manner for the purpose of building our own reputation. It's bad enough for a person to think he is responsible for the blessings and achievements in life. It is still worse to use those blessings and gifts for personal gain and glory rather than the glory of the one who is truly responsible for them. 
Richard Baxter. Number 12, we are discontent and ungrateful with the condition and proportion that God has appointed us. Because of our pride, we are better than we, we think we're better than we are. And we think we deserve better than we have. And part of the attention of trying to get a hold of significant people is, if we can just get their attention, we're going to get the resources we need to get what we truly do deserve. So there's a heart here of ungratefulness. We would never show that, but it is that we really do think very highly of ourselves, and we really deserve a whole lot better than we've gotten, and people need to see who we really are and how wonderful we really are. Those are the characteristics. Okay, and then the next page over, start looking at the harms. How fearing rejection and desiring approval harms us. How does it harm us? to be so focused on people and so focused on their approval and so focused on making sure that our image carries a certain, is carried a certain way. Number one, it brings you into bondage to everyone whom you desire to please. Being a pleaser has shackles and it's public opinion. Whoever has an opinion about you, now you become their slave. Second Peter 2.19, by what a man over, over, overcome, is overcome by, this he is enslaved to. If you're overcome by the praise of men, and you have to have it, and you have to have their good opinion, then you're going to become enslaved to it. 1 Corinthians 7.23 is basically, in that passage, he's talking about getting married and not getting married. And if you're a slave, you don't have to fight to become, get out of it. If you can, you can. But he's saying, just, just be content with where you are. And he says here in verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. You are a slave. You're a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he created you and he purchased you. So he is the one in which all this attention, all this concern about our performance needs to be directed toward him and not toward men. You have as many masters as you have observers. If you're a people pleaser, everybody who's watching you becomes your master. Every person you try to please above and beyond what is allowed by the word of God becomes your captain and your master. Scripture says you cannot serve two masters, much less, what, numerous masters. And then we get into a real pickle when we have two people that we really value so much, and one thinks one way and one thinks the other, and we're trying to find some way to ride in the middle of both of that and make everybody happy. It drives us nuts. Again, Lupriolo. Being a people pleaser is like having a little handle on your back that others can grab hold of to push you and pull you in all directions. Ironically, most of the time, they are unaware that they have such control over you. They're just coming through and living life, and you're super concerned about what they think. They don't even realize that their opinion of you can send you to the left or to the right or back or forward. That's because it is you yourself who give them this power. 
By God's grace, you can break off that handle and set yourself free from the control of others. He gives another memorable visual when he warns that if we are not careful, we become an unwitting marionette in the hands of a few bullying puppeteers. Puppeteers. So what happens when you have a charismatic leader who's controlling and you have a bunch of people who just want to be connected to this person? That is a formula for a lot of manipulation and a lot of control. Because most people, they're not thinking this about you and they're not trying to control your every behavior by what they think. But a person who's a charismatic leader and a controller... And you're drawn to him because, again, if we're a people pleaser, we're drawn to them. Why? To gain significance. I'm not going to a little podunk Baptist church down here where the pastor, we don't even know who he is. I'm going over here to this church because this guy's nationally known. Now, if this guy just happens to be a controller and your little handle in your back, you're getting moved whichever way he wants. And you go, why do those people stay in that church? There's all kinds of abuse going on there. There's all kinds of issues going on there. Because they need the significance of being connected to this person so much that to be separated from them would cause them a huge identity crisis. And the leader loves it that way because he knows even, the, even, a, even a look of disappointment, your direction, You'll be going, well, what can I do to help? How can I help you? You're, you're, you're wonderful. You're amazing. You're awesome. Just love that last message. It was tremendous. When you put those two together, it's a, it's a harmful, harmful mix. How servile a person is a man pleaser. How many masters he has and how many mean ones at that. Man pleasing per- per- perverts the course of your hearts and lives and turns all from God to this unprofitable way of life. You want to have a useless life for God? Continue to allow men-pleasing to be who you are. Number two, so first it brings you into bondage. Two, it takes away from the honor that you so eagerly seek. Those from whom you long to receive honor and whom you desire to impress will eventually be offended, if not repulsed, by the pride that generates your lust for approval. It becomes obvious at some point. It's like, it's like the person on the, on the high school campus or the college campus who's, who's the big star, and everybody's just kind of following along behind. It becomes obvious at some point that these people are just there to get their significance from this person, and it becomes repulsive. Priolo states, on at least two different occasions, I was cured, he says at least temporarily, (laughs) of the desire to exalt myself in the presence of others when God brought an individual into my life whose pride was so obvious. I thought to myself, if my pride is half as obnoxious and repugnant as what I see in him, I repent from the depth of my soul. All of us abhor that pride in others, which we cherish in ourselves. It's one thing when, when it's with you, we have all the rationalizations why this is okay. When it's out there and we see it, we go, oh my goodness, this is awful. I've seen people who are very legalistic 
and very, I mean, they dot every I and cross every T, and they have all the open areas in the scriptures all colored in with their rules of how things are to be done. And they find themselves going to a church that makes their legalism look like child's play. And they see it for what it is, and they're like, wow, that's who I am. I, I'm making a left turn here, or right turn, whichever turn I'm making, and I'm going a different direction. Sometimes when we see it in others, it becomes real, doesn't it? When it's with us, because of our rationalization, it's, it's, just, it's just who we are, and we have a reason for it, and we're just serving God and loving people, and we don't really deal with that issue. Number three, it causes you to lose eternal rewards. You can only serve two masters, either Christ or man, or Christ or mammon, this is where we're at. In Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deals with the outward religion of the Pharisees. And he says what? When you pray, go into your prayer closet so that I will be the only audience. And when you fast, anoint your head with oil so people, know that you're, that you're not, so people don't know you're fasting so that you're doing it for me. And when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what? What your right hand is doing. Why? God needs to be your audience. The audience of one. For the Pharisees, who was, who was their audience? It was the crowd. It was their people. It's time to pray, time to stand on the street corner and pray. Time to fast. Oh, that's been so hard. I've been fasting for days. Aren't I spiritual? And when we give, we play the trumpet and we let everyone know that we're giving. It's pretty serious when you're losing eternal rewards because of our focus on people and their approval. Four, it blinds you to your own sin. It's like the AIDS virus that masks itself so your immune system can't see it. Again, because we have pride here, it blinds us to this. If we look at Jesus in Matthew 23, he goes through a whole list of issues with the Pharisees. And all throughout that passage, he tells them, you're blind. You whitewash the tombs of the prophets, yet you're willing to kill the main prophet. And he goes just through a list of things they've done. They love to preach. He says, but the problem is you're, you convert people and make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. And he just goes through this list. And these people really thought that they were amazing and that they were the best that there was. And yet, in reality, they were completely blind to it. The religious leaders wanted to be noticed and admired by others instead of loving God and people. And they loved what? They loved the places of honor at the banquets. When they got to the banquet, they assumed they were going to the front seat. What does the Bible say about that? It's better for you to go take the least seat so that if then if they want to raise you up, they can. Then you taking the best seat and they go, excuse me, this seat was made for somebody else. You need to go back there to the back. They loved the place of honor. 
they, the chief seats in the synagogues. They, they longed to have these positions. Remember, remember uh, James and John wearing the right and left hand of Jesus? They were looking for that. Respectful greeting in the marketplace. They wanted, to be res- they, they wanted the approval of men. Being called rabbi by men. Having a respected position. And, of course, the approval of men. The religious leaders believed themselves to be the wisest, most discerning, and holy people of all. Jesus saw them as blind guides who were the exact opposite of how they viewed themselves. The real question in our lives is, how does Jesus view us? Not how we view ourselves. Because we always have a tendency to minimize our sin and magnify our greatness. Priola describes the Pharisees' condition this way. In their religious fervor, these spiritual leaders couldn't see the essence of true worship because they were so focused on the details, and I would say upon themselves. They thought they could see the sin in others, but they couldn't see the sin and darkness in their own hearts. Proud people are often so focused on the external sins they perceive in others that they can't see the attitudes that generate the external sins they hold in such contempt. They spend most of their time trying to put out small fires of sin on the surface in their own lives while being totally unaware that there are shrewd and significant arsonists in their own hearts, setting new fires faster than the existing ones can be extinguished. This is probably one of the biggest problems with outward religion, which we're dealing with all in the book of Colossians. If we focus on the outward behavior that we have, and we're trying to get rid of that, we never see the real insidious sin that's underneath it. We never do. We don't see the pride. We don't see the arrogance. We don't see the um, unteachable spirit that we have because we just deal with it on the surface level. I remember when I was a young boy, my dad and I would go and weed the flower beds. And how that worked is he spaded, and I was on a little can, and I was pulling the weeds out as it came. There was one little little plant or weed. We called it nutgrass. I don't know what the biological name for it is. But it had real slender little blades, and it had a little black nut down the ground, maybe six to eight inches. And if you just pulled the blade off, it, it, the place looked great. You had them all pulled up. The problem is within three days, they had all their friends pop back up again because this nut was the root and would continue to spawn off more nuts and more, more, more weeds. So you could, you could completely weed a bed and leave the nuts in there. And within a matter of two weeks with a good rain, it looked like you never had touched it. A lot of us are that way in our Christian life. We're focused on the outward things we don't do or the external things that people see, because that's what we're really concerned about. And we don't look at the root that is causing that to come up. For people-pleasing, the root is what? Pride. And an arrogant pride at that. A pride that really is more concerned about our own glory than the glory of God. And we would, just to acknowledge that, would be greatly healing for us. The problem is, is that makes us sound bad. So let's stick on the outward surface. 
of things. If all you do is deal with the outward things you're doing that aren't right, even the people please, I'm not going to be a people pleaser anymore. Well, that still doesn't get down to the issue. The issue is your pride. The issue is your need to be exalted. Your issue is the fact that you just love the praise of people because you're more concerned about your glory than the glory of Christ. Number five, it makes you more susceptible to being ensnared and manipulated. If you're a people pleaser, guess what? People will manipulate you. They'll, they'll come with you. They'll come at you with flattery and other things. Priolo says flattery is trying to influence or gain an advantage over someone by praising or pleasing him above and beyond that which his character or position merits. Flattery is a verbal snare. It is a cunning and a deceitful kind of praise intended to trap and hurt the unsuspecting and to benefit the one who laid it. Flattery makes the good about you seem better than it is and the bad about you seem less than it is. And for people who are dying to be accepted by the important person in the group, all it takes is a little flattery and to draw them right in and keep them there. Priolo again, in the final analysis, the act of flattery is an act of deceit. It is a lie that many are willing to believe because they excessively long for the approval of others. Once they believe the first lie, they find it hard to not believe the subsequent ones. They do not see the deceit that deceit shall not dwell within my house. They do not see the flatterer as a liar whose company should not be tolerated. He's not lying. He's speaking the truth about me. I'm wonderful. Psalm 101.7, He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Of course, that's unless the flatterer repents and forsakes his sin, and then he would no longer be a spiritual danger to those around him. Neither do approval junkies see him as a manipulator who is able to grab hold of that people-pleasing handle that protrudes from their back to push and pull them in any direction he chooses. Number six, make the people-pleaser susceptible to many other temptations. Once Once your focus is on people... Once your focus is, is gaining their approval or avoiding their displeasure, um, and once we've demoted God from his position, then the gates are open. We have hypocrisy, we have discontent, we have greed, we have timidity, we have defense of, re- of reproof, we can't take a reproof, uh, we're not teachable, we choose unwise friends because they have flattered us and told us how wonderful they are, and we're not accepted by them, so we're going to do whatever they do. Let's go jump off this bridge. Oh, that sounds like a wonderful idea. Let's go do that. It's just craziness. Indecision, giving in to peer pressure. All that comes from this inordinate need for the approval of people. Okay, parents, uh, here's a good word for, for you. I am persuaded that the single best way for Christian parents to insulate their children against peer pressure is to teach them how to identify and dethrone the idol of man's approval and to replace it with an intense desire for God's approval. That's really the cure here, friends. Now, of course, there's assuming that the gospel of Jesus Christ has made your child a new crea- creation and has done, is doing a work in his heart. You can't root this out of somebody who doesn't know Christ. With Christ, it can be rooted out. The most powerful way to teach them this truth is for them to see that with you and others around you, modeling the truth, 
being able to live and not be a people pleaser. And finally, number seven, what plagues the people pleaser is anxiety. There's constant anxiety of how people viewed me. How did they accept me? I had them to the house. Did they like did they like their time here? Did they think my house was beautiful? Did they think I'm driving a good car? Did they like the clothes I was wearing? Did I say the right thing? It was appropriate in that. Did I did I invite the right people to the party? All these things. It's just an endless array of anxiety. So what's our what's our cure for this? It's Christ. Jesus was and is rejected by man. The one you've chosen to follow, his life had a pattern of rejection by men. In Isaiah 53.3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. The one who lives for his own glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, was willing to be rejected and despised by men. He was rejected by man and God. He was rejected by God because of you and me and because of our sin. In order that we will not be rejected by God and that we will no longer be enslaved to fearing those created by God. Christ's death communicates to us that we're accepted by God. What does that mean? You have significance. Whether anybody else thinks you have significance, you have significance because Christ died for you. So in our search for significance from other people's view, and oh, how we, oh, we just need that so much, we can rest in the acceptance of Christ we can rest in the fact that we are significant. And we can go about doing what God has called us to do, knowing that everybody's not going to be happy with what we do. Paul was truly free to minister. And as you read the pages of his letter, you see clearly the opposition he faced the slander that he faced and all kinds of other things that he faced in his ministry. And yet, he was like a rock because his primary audience was God. And he knew that the praise of men was fickle at best. In Christ, we have been accepted. We've received the greatest approval and acceptance that you'll ever need. So the more we focus on Christ, the more we focus on his approval, the more he becomes our audience, the more that we realize that we're accepted by him and that we're significant because of him and connected to him. We can begin to let go of the people-pleasing. And we can say the things that need to be spoken into people's lives. And we can walk in ways that may not please the crowd but please him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you set a pattern for us um, and you were rejected and you were despised and you took our sin upon yourselves 
yourself and were rejected by the Father and received his wrath that we might be accepted, that we might be significant, that we might live lives that are useful for your kingdom. Oh, Father, what a wasted life is one that is consumed with the approval of men, consumed with the fear of men's rejection. Father, we all face this temptation. We all are more proud than we're willing to admit. We all want to be thought well of. We all want people to admire us and admire our child training and admire our spirituality and admire our success in life and all the things that we desire people to see in us. Father, may we consider that rubbish. May we set that on the side and may we seek to please you who one day will say, hopefully, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, help us to spend time thinking about this, meditating on this, even around our, our family table. Lord, that we would become more pleasers of you than pleasers of men. In Jesus' name, amen.